Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, aka Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope that you're all still safe and well. I've been keeping busy uh, working on some new projects. I really do love the freelance work that I do, but it's an inconsistent income. So I'm working on ways to learn to earn at least a little pin money doing things that I love. Um, but so far, we're still safe and healthy and wearing our masks. And I hope that you are doing the same. Today's play is weird. Um, I mean, Plautus's plays can frequently be described as a little weird, but this one breaks the form, sort of, literally. Um, we'll see the stock characters are still there, but they're not as stocky as they normally are. Um, today we have Persia, which translates as uh, the Persian. Um, sometimes it's called the Persian girl. Uh, there is no Persian girl in this play. She's Greek or, you know, Roman, um, <laughs> or maybe I should put that the other way. You know what I mean? Um, it is one of Plautus's later works, uh, but there's not much else I can provide as far as background is concerned. Um, and uh, because it breaks form and because I am working from that old uh, Henry Thomas Riley translation that does not include Dramatis Personae for any of the plays, um, I had a really hard time keeping straight what on earth is happening in this play. Uh, I did find a dissertation uh, by Joseph Matthew Conlin, so I'll be referencing his work um, in the hopes of being able to provide you more of a summary than what Riley provides at the beginning of each of his translations. Riley does, it, that is one thing that is nice about that. There's a little, little intro explaining what's going to happen in the plot with Riley, um, but when I was actually reading it, I, it, it, you will see why it's hard to keep, keep straight. Um, so with much thanks to Conlin, I will try to give you a cast list before we dive into the summary. Um, in most of Plautus's plays, we have a good mix of slaves and free characters. Um, in Persa, all of those stock characters, um, they start to get merged. Um, and it turns out that most of the characters are slaves. Um, there are eight speaking roles in, in this play, um, and five of them are slaves and three are, are free. Uh, Toxilus is our protagonist and he is our clever slave. And he also happens to be our love-struck young man, which is normally a character played by, it's normally a free character, not a slave character. Um, his BFF is also a slave, uh, Sagaristio. And the other slaves we will meet are um, Sophoclidisca, uh, Lemnisalinus, and uh, Pygnium. And um, as I noted, the other three characters with speaking roles are all, all free characters. And they, they fit their stock characters a bit more appropriately than the slaves who have some overlap um, between what's normally a free character and what's normally a slave character. Um, a, a bit, sort of. Um, there's Dordalis, the procurer, who owns, um, um, sorry, Lemnisaline. Um, and he is very typical procurer character. Um, and Satorio is the parasite character, and he's pretty typical parasite character. Um, then there is Satorio's daughter. 
And she really deserves a name because she's kind of awesome. But she's also, you know, a woman and she's just his daughter and she has no name in this play, even though she deserves one. Um, I, as I noted, I find this play to be confusing. Um, And if you've read it, I suspect that you might agree. Um, And that's about as much background as I can provide. Uh, The play set in Athens, like a lot of Roman comedies. Um, So, so with all of that, we'll take a short break here and then I'll do my best to summarize the plot. As the play opens, uh, Toxilus and Sagaristio enter from opposite sides of the stage. They are each talking to themselves. Toxilus speaks of how he is in love and needs money to buy his girl, because that's how women are typically treated in Plautus's comedies. Um, and Sagaristio speaks about how slaves should be happy, but he's not because his master is not so great. Um, The two slaves realize that they aren't alone on stage and greet each other, each still complaining about his own state of being at the time. Um, Toxilus asks Sagaristio to lend him 600 die drachms. Um, He's already asked everyone he knows for the money, but he's had no luck. And after much cajoling, Sagaristio agrees to help his friend. The, uh, they both exit, Sagaristio offstage and Toxilus into his house or, you know, his master's house. Uh, Satorio enters. Uh, he soliloquizes about how he comes from a long line of parasites. You know, his father was a parasite and his grandfather and his great-grandfather all before him. This is how they make their living. Um he sees the door to the house opening and stops to see who it is. And it's Toxilus, uh, who Saturio leeches off of as a parasite. Um, yes, Toxilus is a slave, but he has a parasite. We'll talk more about that later. Um, uh, Toxilus enters. He's still talking to himself. Um, he's come up with a way to purchase his sweetheart's freedom from her procurer, by using the procurer's own money. He sees Saturio and explains his plan. He just needs to borrow Saturio's daughter. Uh, He's going to get someone to sell her to the procurer. Uh, They'll have to do it in disguise, though, because the procurer knows everybody. Uh, And since this bargain might mean a meal or three, uh, Saturio agrees, and he exits to come up with disguises for himself and his daughter, and to teach his daughter her role in this plot, and uh, Toxilus goes back into the house. Uh, Sophocladisca and Lemnicellini enter from Dordalus's house. Sophocladisca is on a bit of a tear about how she's been treated, constantly being talked down to, but she supposes she must forgive Lemnicellini because she's in love and people in love can never be counted on. And Lemnicellini agrees that being in love sucks and exits back into the house. She is a woman of few words. Um... Asafo Kladiska uh, rolls her eyes and decides that she's going to go give this Toxilus that Lemnicellini is in love with a piece of her mind. Toxilus and uh, Pagnium enter. Toxilus confirms that Pagnium knows all of his lines. Um, and after a bit of stage business, 
Toxilis is certain that Pagnam is prepared to take a letter to Lemna Cellini, and Toxilis goes back into the house. Sophocladiska steps forward and partakes in some verbal sparring with Pognium, and they eventually figure out that each has a letter for the other's master. Uh, they cross paths and exit into opposite houses to deliver their respective letters. Sagaristio enters. He's found the money for Toxilis. Sure, his master told him to go and buy some oxen with it, but he'd rather help his friend, even if he might get whipped for it. Pognium enters from Dordalus's house, his delivery complete, and he hurries back to his own home. Sagaristio stops him, but Pognium insists he's been gone too long, and uh, they argue, but it really amounts to nothing because Pognium exits into his own house. Toxilis and Sophocladiska enter together. He's filling her in on the details of his plan, which Lemne Cellini should already know because that's what he wrote in the letter to her that Pagnam just delivered. Um, Sophocladiska exits into her house to make sure that Lemne Cellini understands the plan. Um, Sagaristio steps forward. He gives Toxilis the requested money, and Toxilis's promises to return it before the day is out. Um, and the two slaves exit into Toxilis's house so that Toxilis can explain the plan. The audience, of course, already knows a bit of what it is, so they don't need to repeat it on stage. Uh, Satorio and his daughter enter. She is dressed like, um, like an Arabian princess, or at least the ancient Roman concept of an ancient Arabian princess. Um, and... Uh, and Satorio is doing his best to explain to her um, that he's going to sell her to Dordalis, the procurer, and she very politely and wittily counters every single one of his arguments. She is, at heart, a good and obedient girl, and she's going to do what her father tells her to do, you know, in the end, but she's not going down without a fight, even if it's just a verbal one. And they exit into Toxilis's house. You can see everybody is gathering up there for, for the, the oncoming plot against Dordalus. Dordalus enters from his house. Uh, he's wondering where his money is. His neighbor had promised to pay him today. Uh, Toxilis enters with the money that he got from Sagaristio. He pays Dordalus and tells him to send Lemnis Cellini through the garden from uh, Dordalus's house to Toxilis's, and they each exit into their respective houses. Toxilis re-enters very shortly thereafter, and he tells the audience and himself that everything is going according to plan. He calls back inside for uh, the Persian girl, this, or it, and it gets confusing whether she's supposed to be dressed as an Arabian princess or as a Persian princess, which are two different parts of the world. I mean, I suppose they're close to each other geographically, but... It gets, it gets confusing who is the Persian, quote-unquote Persian. They're all Greek or Roman. You know what I mean. Um, so the, so he calls for, for this girl that his master sent. Um, and the audience knows that this is all made up. There is no girl that his master sent. But, but Toxilis is putting on a good show just in case Dordalus is listening. Um, Sagaristio and the daughter enter, and they're both dressed in Persian garb, or Sagaristio is dressed in Persian garb, and the daughter is dressed in Arab garb. And again, this is all the Roman concept of what what that garb would have looked like back, um, you know, in the first century, uh, first or second century CE, or BCE, pardon me. Um, 
Toxless praises the costuming and sends them off to wait for Dordalus, who enters shortly thereafter. He tells Toxless that his sweetheart is now at Toxless's house waiting for him. And Toxless feigns distraction because of this letter that he supposedly has gotten from his master. Dordalus takes the letter and he reads it. And it tells of what Toxless's master has sent from Persia, including a certain young woman who is to be sold in Athens. Um, and it charges Toxless to see to that sale. Dordalus, as a procurer, is, of course, quite interested in purchasing this, this young woman. Um, Sagaristio and the daughter enter and put on an excellent play for Dordalus. Uh, the scene would be entirely icky if it weren't for just how witty the daughter is throughout. She's, you know, got that certain sort of Rosalind or Beatrice that, that we see in Shakespeare about her, um, except mm, much more subservient of a character than than those two delightful, delightful roles. Um, the um, Dordalus and Toxalus ultimately settle on a sum um, that just happens to match what Toxalus has paid for Lemnisalene. Uh, Dordalus exits to get the money. The daughter, Toxalus, and Sagaristio do a little happy dance, um, and Dordalus returns and gives the money to Sagaristio. Sagaristio exits. Uh, Dordalus remembers that he forgot to tell his slave something, and he asks Toxalus to keep an eye on the daughter and exits back into his house. Toxalus checks that Saturio is ready for the next scene, um, and the parasite pops out to say, yep, I am, and then he goes back out of sight. Dordalus returns. Toxalus says that he's off to see his newly freed girlfriend and exits into his house. Saturio enters in a put-on huff. His daughter runs to him, and Dordalus figures out that he's paid for a freeborn woman and not a captured slave. Saturio drags Dordalus off to the magistrate um, to be punished for this infraction, and the daughter follows. So she's not going to wind up being a slave to the procurer after all. Um, Toxalus enters, followed shortly by Lemnisalene, uh, Sagaristio, and Pagnium, and they toast their good fortune. Dordalus enters, grumbling to himself about his bad fortune. The slaves invite him to join their revelry, which involves a great deal of slapstick and ends with Dordalus stomping off into his house. Toxalus tells the audience that they have defeated the procurer and that the audience should now clap. really think that Plautus had a hard time writing endings. <laughs> this is another play that ends very abruptly. Have you ever heard the joke about why uh, classical symphonies tend to have such long endings? Because they were getting paid by how long they were, so they just added a few more sustained chords at the end to make it longer. You know, um, I could probably keep going, and that would be a classical symphony. Uh, it's almost like Plautus had the opposite thing going on. He only had so much time and suddenly realized that he had like 10 seconds left, and so the play just ends. And yes, I have just totally made that up. Um, but given how many plays feel like they have a few more scenes in them, uh, and then a character turns to the audience and says, you can clap now, and that's the end. <laughs> Anyway, I would love to highlight a stock character for you today, um, but this play 
goes completely against form. It upends all of the tropes that we've come to expect from a Roman comedy. And what this winds up doing is making the characters more rounded than we expect, um, which is not a bad thing. Uh, Toxilus fills the role of both the clever slave and the young lover. He is a slave, but he has a parasite and a slave of his own. Um, We've seen other parasites with relationships with slaves, but they've always been the master's parasite. And that's not the case here. Satorio is Toxilus's parasite. Um, And when Pygnium is asked about his master, he speaks of Toxilus, not some mutual master that the two slaves have. Uh, I mean, Toxilus is almost like a liminal stock character. Not really. He's definitely a slave. Um, But he takes on the role or some roles that are normally assumed by free characters. Um, Then there's the daughter. She is, in some ways, 100% what we expect of a Virgo. She's free, as in she's not a slave. Um, She's innocent. She's an object with no name. Um, But then she takes on the role of the clever slave, verbally sparring with both her father and Dordalus, and effectively outsmarting both of them. Um, Once she knows that she won't really be sold into slavery, she happily takes on the role of the captured foreigner and plays it with a plum. In his dissertation, Conlin says that this must have been disconcerting to an ancient audience. Um, they would have been just as confused as mo- uh, as a modern audience as they try to figure out which role each of these characters is supposed to have filled. And given that there was a kind of standard form that comedy followed, I think it might have been even more confusing. Um, a modern audience might not approach this play with the same expectations as an ancient one. Um, you know, we don't we don't go into every single comedy knowing oh, there's going to be a clever slave and a parasite and a procurer and um, a love-struck young man and a hen-pecking wife. And we don't don't expect all of those roles to exist in a specific form when we, we go to a comedy today. But the ancient Romans kind of did. So, so why, um, why then is this important? Um, what does that say about ancient Rome? And more importantly, what does this say about us? We so easily settle into the form that it's confusing when that form is broken. Um, so where else in our lives do we do this? If nothing else, the play should remind us to check our biases. We all have them. There's nothing we can do about having them. There is nothing wrong with the fact that we have biases. They are innate. They are part of how, as a species, we have survived um, and evolved. But we don't have to be driven by them anymore. Um, And this play shows us that the tropes in comedy are just that. They're tropes. They are not hard and fast rules. And that's something we all need to remember as we walk through life. Just because we see someone who looks a certain way or behaves a certain way doesn't mean that our bias about that physicality is something that we need to act on. 
Ooh, I got deep there. But it's true. Even a silly comedy from 2100 years ago uh, can give us lessons about life. And that's what I love about studying these works. So what are your thoughts? I didn't even touch on Orientalism in this episode. Um, There's a discussion prompt about it on the blog because that's something that would look very different today than it might have back in ancient Rome. Um, Or depending on like where in the world you're producing this, if you were to produce it to play uh, today. Anyway, come over to the blog and share what you think. Uh, It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link, depending on your platform, are in the show notes. On Wednesday, we will visit the underworld with Odysseus in book 11 of the Odyssey. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.